<laughs> I think one of the really difficult things that I think people really underestimate is to know who you are. And I think obviously that's a work in progress. It's something that never ends. Such a journey. And having that opportunity to be able to understand who you are in every sense of the word. And that means a kind of warts and all approach. That means uncovering the stones where you really don't want to look and where you're not really sure about what you're going to find. It's really important to do that. And I think particularly if you're going to be a leader or even a manager, just on that level of kind of just knowing yourself and what sort of buttons are going to get pressed. Or so I would say the greatest challenge for my life, let alone my, my business and working life, is to really know who I am and to try and stay kind of connected to that. Try and keep that growing edge, but to be authentic and to try and have some integrity about how I am in the world. Welcome to the She Leads Business Show for female owners and leaders of small and medium-sized businesses. You are in the right place if you want a more aligned success, to make a greater impact and to have happy, engaged, high-performing and inflow teams that you trust to get the job done. Allowing you to ditch the stress and firefighting, to focus on your most fulfilling high-value work and to have the financial and time freedom to live the life you truly desire and deserve. I'm your host, Una Doyle, founder of creativeflow.tv, and I'm a speaker, business strategist, and impact coach. Business owners and leaders hire me to help them to achieve impact-driven growth. Yet not every business owner is in the position to hire me, so I created this podcast, and in every episode, myself and my guests share the stories, strategies, and actionable wisdom to help you to achieve this too. Now, on with the show. Hello, hello, hello. It is Una Doyle here, host of She Leads Business, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome the CEO of Lancashire Women, Amanda Greenwood. Welcome. Hi, great to be here. Lovely to have you here. So before we get stuck into your story and your journey, can you tell us a little bit about what is Lancashire Women? Okay, we're a Lancashire-based, clues in the name, uh, (laughs) charity that has been going now for about 35 years. We were established originally in Blackburn and we've grown over this period of time, really as an organisation that supports women right across Lancashire. Now, as a charity, of course, uh, that inevitably means that we also kind of try and prioritise those who are most vulnerable. However, we are there to support anybody and particularly with the work streams that we run. We support women around mental health and well-being. We also provide money advice, um, debt advice, support around those issues. We also uh, provide employment guidance and coaching and support training. And we also work within the criminal justice system, as well as trying to support and prevent women who are in dire circumstances from entering the system in the first place. That sounds like a really broad remit. It is. It is. (laughs) I mean, one of the things for us as an organisation is to be really clear about those work streams and to ensure that we are... um, working within the within that remit in a way that makes the work that we do the best that we can be so it's really important for us to stay focused and to kind of keep to those objectives um it looks like we we cover everything but we don't well, fo- i'm a big fan of focus <laughs> yeah. what can i say it makes such such a difference 
Fabulous. Well, I mean, I imagine that you're probably quite busy right now with everything that's been going on. Has, has that seen a big uptake in your services? It's an interesting time. And I think other charities and certainly colleagues from across the sector, both in Lancashire and nationally, will echo the fact that when the lockdown first happened, it was really like a sort of panic for what we're going to do and how we're going to shift our operations and how we work. Um, demand did drop for a while because I think everybody was almost shocked into a state of being where I think for all of us regardless it was right what is this where are we what do we do what we're finding now six months in is and the classic issue for us and that we've experienced before and as I say for other sector leaders as well is that the demand for what we do is clearly going up but the resources obviously are a constant challenge for us. So it's that balancing act of ensuring that we can keep supporting women and at the same time ensure that we've got the resources there as best as we can to fulfil that. And does most of your funding come from government contracts or where where does that funding come from? It's the general a public? real it's a real mix. Um, and obviously for us as an organisation, I think this is something that people find sometimes challenging around charities. We try and work commercially where we can. That's a small part of what we do that can involve um, the kind of charity shop offer or it can involve selling um, products or things that we offer as part of our mainstream services like training and anything like that but our main funding comes from grants so from charitable foundations and trusts including national programs like the lottery um, but also from contracts as you say we try and um, uh, bid wherever possible for the appropriate contracts both at local authority county level and nationally and we have a mix of those within our income sort of portfolio the other part of that, actually, just thinking about it, it's really important to emphasise this, and that is the fundraising that we do as part of our fundraising work um, is also a big part of what we do. So we have local businesses supporting us, but we have local individuals raising money for us by doing crazy things, um, taking their time as volunteers to come and work with us. So it's a, it's a really big, very mixed effort um, to get that mixed sort of uh, and very diverse funding portfolio, for want of a better description. But then maybe having a diverse funding portfolio is exactly what you need at these times, because yeah. if some sources are going down, then it, that allows you to be able Spread to source risk. funding. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that is a challenge for us as an organisation um, and for a lot of charities and social enterprises. You know, you have a couple of really good income sources or you have a, uh, a number of income sources that come from a similar kind of. Um, pot or that's the challenge the challenge is to keep that mix and to try and grow that mix exactly as you say just to make sure that you're spreading the risk as evenly as you can but that that can be quite challenging in itself and there's you and how many people doing all of this well, currently we have 85 members of staff and um, they're working across all of Lancashire. We have sort of five sites, if you like, but a number of buildings um, that we run and the staff have traditionally worked from there. Um, as you can imagine, uh, none of our buildings are doing very much at the moment. And in fact, we've managed to move our entire operation remotely. So that's a very interesting thing for us, although we're still doing face to face work with those women where we know it's really difficult they need that contact they need that connection uh, socially distant of course but not in offices not in buildings so yeah and I think this is something that you know for those of us who are in business we probably take 
being online to a large extent, almost for granted. Yes, there's many people in the world who actually they're not, they've never would have done a conference call or, you know, would, wouldn't feel comfortable with various technologies that we might be used to using in business, I guess. I think you'd be surprised, actually. It's something that the sector itself is increasingly getting its head around. And I think one of the really exciting things for uh, certainly the work that we've been doing is we've been part of a, a project that's been funded by Lottery, and that's a digital project. But we've been doing work around digital for probably about three, four years now, really trying to understand how that can enhance our service offer. Um, as well as support the work that we do. So we're getting there, but we lack um, some of the uh, investments and resources perhaps that we would really like to take advantage of the technology that is out there. That's probably the one of the most frustrating bits, but we do the best we can. We're obviously very resourceful, but um, yeah, it's a challenge, but we're catching up with everybody else in the 21st century. <laughs> well, I, I think that, that's great to hear because I think when people have got some kind of disadvantage you know to then have technology as an additional disadvantage it doesn't help does it so if you're able to help those women to be able to operate on the same level to have those same um the same access to knowledge and interactions and all the the good things that can come from technology that's only got to help them 100%. And it's really interesting um, aspect, really, of what I think some people might call a kind of digital poverty. Certainly, we've experienced it where there have been very vulnerable women that we've been working with who've not had access to a smartphone. They may have had access to other kinds of communication tools. But as you can imagine, if you've gone into lockdown and all the services have shut down, there's not much connect and you're trying to find somebody to help you with something or to support inevitably if you can't go into a store or into a shop into an office a job seekers center or anything like that then you are really on your own so one of the things that we've been able to do we secured some funding and uh, we've been providing those most vulnerable who've not had any access to any of that kind of basic that we would consider basic stuff around having a smartphone um, we've been supporting some of our women with some of those um, kind of bits of kit, if you like, some giving them the tech, because that is about access. That's accessing stuff that the rest of us can often take for granted, as you say. So, yeah, that's a really good illustration of how how we can do that sort of work and perhaps uh, address some of the things that the rest of us may take for granted. I think sometimes we don't know how lucky we are. It's always good to a be grateful for that and also to be aware that not everyone else might be in the same situation. Well, that sounds like, you know, you've got a lot on as CEO, Amanda, but I want to go back a few years. In fact, a lot of years. <laughs> Tell me oh. about Amanda growing up. What was life? What was life like for you? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was, oh, how would I describe that? Well, I just went to an ordinary school in the middle of a very large sort of urban conurbation, um, lived with my parents and my twin sisters and went to a sort of first and middle school, had a whale of time and then went to comprehensive school. Remember those? Possibly not. That might be too much of a blast from the past. I, I was educated in Ireland, so it's a bit different uh -huh. over there. <laughs> OK, so... So that, that was the route. And then I carried sort of my childhood really was very happy. Um, there were obviously all the trials and tribulations of growing up, all the teenage years and all the teenage tantrums I and mean, everything else. But 
yeah, I just kind of went through that and ended up in a position where I left school. Uh, I did spectacularly mess my A-levels up, I have to say. Um, ended up an extra year swanning around, thinking about what on earth I was going to do next before I eventually, eventually managed to get into uh, business school. And I went and did a degree at Leeds. So that was my trajectory from childhood into that sort of next stage of my life, really. Ah, interesting. I also did my degree at Leeds, though that ah. was <laughs> I did it as a mature student while I was okay. working at an agency 56 hours a week and getting divorced partway through five long years. That was <laughs> OK. <laughs> wow. That is some journey as well. <laughs> yeah, not quite the student experience that most people have. <laughs> no, I can imagine. I can imagine. But yeah, Leeds, I love Leeds. I think it's, it's got a very special place in my heart. And I stayed there for a number of years afterwards, just kind of trying to sort out where I was going to work, what I was going to do, and just try and sort of make sense of what that platform gave me, really, because it certainly wasn't exactly as I'd planned it. So, yeah. And what's life look like for you now? Um, I live in Greater Manchester, so I live just outside of Stockport. So before anybody starts booing and hissing from the Lancastrian <laughs> side... Um, <laughs> I, uh, I've lived here for about five or six years. I've been in Greater Manchester for about 10, 15 years. I have two boys. Um, they are 16 and 19. Um, I live with my partner here in Stockport. And at the moment, obviously, we're just in lockdown like everybody else and trying to get through. But otherwise, we do lots of stuff like walking. I swim whenever I can, um, get out and about and see friends, love food, wine, drinking with friends and family and having meals out and doing all of that kind of thing. So yeah, just kind of fairly boring sort of existence in some ways, but yeah, enjoy travel. But obviously and, uh, all of these things. You forgot a key member of your family. Have I got, sorry? You forgot a key member of your family. Ah, now you remember this, don't you? Very good, uh, Dennis. Yeah, <laughs> Dennis is our rescue staffy. Um, he's been with us now for two years and he made a guest appearance, didn't he, when we first had a conversation? He did. <laughs> yeah, uh, luckily he's been kept out today. So uh, otherwise we'd never hear the end of it if the door went. So that's yes. But yeah, he's a great member of the family, very important member of the family. Absolutely. Is it... <laughs> Some listeners may know that I really want to have a dog, <laughs> but I used to have a cross staffy many years ago. Um, unfortunately, I lost him in the divorce. Aww. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I think is really interesting in talking to people like yourself is to hear about your journey and, you know, some of the the challenges that you've had, some of the successes that you've had. And, you know, what would you say is the the key challenge that you've had in your journey to where you are now today? Let's just go in on an easy question, shall we? <laughs> okay. You just had the easy questions. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay, fine. Um, I think one of the really difficult things that I think people really underestimate is to know who you are. And I think obviously that's a work in progress and it's something that never ends, but it's such a journey and having that opportunity to be able to understand who you are in every sense of the word. And that means a kind of warts and all approach. That means uncovering the stones where you really don't want to look and where you're not really sure about what you're going to find. It's really important to do that. And I think particularly if you're going to, be a leader 
or even a manager just on that level of kind of just knowing yourself and what sort of buttons are going to get pressed or where your areas your soft spots are I think it's really important so for me it's an ongoing process I would say the greatest challenge for my life let alone my my business and working life is to really know who I am and to try and stay kind of connected to that try and keep that growing edge but to be authentic and to try and have some integrity about how I am in the world and God knows I make a spectacular mess of that over the years and learned huge amounts and crunched my way through dreadful meetings and dreadful excruciating connections with people at times but it it it's purposeful it's you know it's who I am here and now and haven't stopped but yeah I would say that's been the greatest challenge can you give us an example of one of those excruciating times because I'm really curious now (laughs) I knew you were going to ask that I remember when I worked probably about 15 20 years ago now and it was probably one of the first main sort of area-wide management jobs that I'd got bearing in mind that I had come through a kind of um, local based working environment as a community worker then I'd moved into kind of managing projects and teams and changed organizations and moved into the public sector and moved back out again and I found myself working for a, um, a local authority as part of one of the regeneration teams and um, I couldn't get my head round or was not really being truthful about my approach which was trying to be the right on community worker doing what I needed to do with the local people which was entirely appropriate except I forgot the fact I was a manager and I was a manager of an organization that I needed to toe the line with and to represent and to do all that stuff and I got into hot water one day and got taken into the chief exec's office for a conversation and came out there just smarting to be honest um And they weren't inappropriate and they weren't awful, but I definitely came out feeling like I am never going to do that again. Your boundaries got crossed. My wires got crossed. I think there was a whole load of learning in that, which enabled me to kind of understand the importance of knowing boundaries, the importance of understanding the purpose of your role and understanding that kind of professionalism that I think is really something you develop over time. And particularly as you move from your kind of younger working age into you know, 20s and 30s and 40s beyond, really. What was... that? That's just making me think, like, there's a real lesson in there in terms of, like, when anyone is promoted from one role into another, or perhaps they might change firms or organisations, but they're essentially shifting that focus of... I, I guess it's who are their key stakeholders... Is, is that what, was that the root of that, you think? Yes, I think it was. But I think it was also a kind of um, struggle in terms of my own identity, I think, to try and stay in with the team, to try and be part of the team and to be that kind of colleague that they wanted you to be and to kind of have the banter and everything, as well as to kind of be in with the local people, knowing that they had their agenda. And, and we needed to support that. But I forgot, actually, I was a manager. And I needed to step out of that and I needed to ensure that I had the distance and the boundaries to be able to take the hard decisions, knowing that that may affect, you know, that kind of relationship stuff and that connection that really got compromised, really got compromised. 
That's really interesting. In my mind, I'm just seeing that, you know, in the role you were in, you perhaps had a more insular view. But then when you got promoted, you perhaps had a, a broader perspective and were able to see other things. But you were, or at least you that's where you could have been, but you were kind of still kind of staying down. Is that is that right? Yeah, a little bit. And I think it's yeah. the worry that you're not going to be accepted. It's that kind of movement also of slightly edging into imposter stuff. It's sort of, is this my job? Am I away? Can I do this? Am I capable of doing this? Well, I'll just kind of relay that with my mates and connect with my kind of colleagues and I'll do my thing. And I'm not saying any of this was explicit because it isn't, but there are ways and habits and behaviours that you 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 just they sit under the radar they sit there very nicely and you don't need to pick up those rocks sometimes and have a look and question them if everything's working for you you're not going to look at it but when it didn't work and when I had that shall we say interesting conversation with my CEO at that time then it really forces things out into the open you have to take a long a long hard look really at what what it was that was going on and where where your professional role really needed to be placed, where your where your allegiances, where your boundaries were, and how you needed to conduct yourself in that kind of environment, really, and lift lift your eyes upwards rather than just keeping that focus on being down down with everybody else and down with the kind of down with the kids, really, in that sense of just trying to stay in with everybody and wanting that banter and wanting that connection because it kind of validates who you are in that context and standing Absolutely. outside of that is hard because then you really have to stand up with your own sense of self. Definitely. So it's that whole thing about when you're switching from one role to another, your comfort zone is typically with the role that you were in. And so having to step outside of that, the danger is that you just go, oh, I'll just stay in this comfort zone rather than (laughs) being uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think (laughs) we don't grow without that discomfort. No, totally. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, if you if you're not feeling the discomfort, then there's you know, we have a saying at work that we use sometimes, which is a comfort zone is a very comfortable place. But it is exactly that. And there will be no growth there. There's no growth in your comfort zone. Exactly. It's like that saying about, you know, a ship in harbour is very safe, but it's not where it's designed to be. No, true. Oh, like that one as well. Oh, you haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one. (laughs) I shall remember that one yes it's uh it's a good one and I think it's very true and I think like one of the things I really love is helping you know when I see people who actually do step outside their comfort zone and and actually grow their comfort zone because it's not about you have to be uncomfortable every minute of every day it is about you know what do I need like who am I becoming yeah in order to for that new thing to be my new comfort zone yeah. that that is expanded. Um, I think the whole concept of imposter syndrome is is so interesting, especially because generally speaking, the people who have imposter syndrome actually are very successful. The reason they have imposter syndrome is because they have achieved something. <laughs> they've won an award, they've got promoted, they've grown their business, they've, you know, they've done, they have achievements under their belt. They actually have evidence that they they are good enough, yet often internally there's some feeling of not being good enough 
of not deserving, not being worthy. Um, and it's and it's not necessarily something that's there 100 percent of the time. But when I just think it's so interesting when people slip into those patterns as and as you say, can be totally oblivious. That is yeah. so subconscious, isn't it? It is. And I think it's also that whole thing of then knowing who you are. It comes back for me around knowing who you are and how you who you are, sorry, and having a sense of that and grounding yourself in that. Because otherwise you start to do two things, I think, given just what you've described, Ina, which is on the one hand, and I this is what happened in that job situation I described, you strive to be liked rather than to be able to do your job and get the respect for what you need to do your job. That's one of the key issues. And I think the other thing is then you end up being apologetic. And if you are apologetic for who you are and how you are, you've lost it. And it's not about being arrogant and it's not about kind of, you know, pulling rank or anything else along those things. It's literally about saying, here is my role. Here is my purpose. I need to do this to the best of my ability. I can't keep looking over my shoulder and worrying about the demons that are either sitting there or the demons that I think are churning away inside. And it, that's a real, it's a discipline, but I think it's something for certainly myself, you know, I can pedal like mad, like the proverbial swan and look fabulous on the top in that sense and feel like it's all going swimmingly. But I have to say it's hard work. It's hard work. So it's that challenge of keeping buoyant and keeping afloat and keeping yourself there and growing, as you say, kind of paddling towards the, the horizon with the discomfort that you're cover, carrying in some senses. And like you say, it's not always about having discomfort. God knows you'd totally trash and burn out if that was the case. There's got to be some joy yes. in this. But um, yeah, there is a reality check on all of this. It's about kind of knowing again who you are, I think, and really having that sense of, the, of, of that at the heart of how you work. Let me ask you something. If I was to ask you to give me 10 pounds or dollars or euros, whatever your particular currency is, and I guaranteed to give you a hundred back and then followed through and did so, would you want to do it again? Of course you would. <laughs> That's a 10 times return on your investment. Well, today I want to share with you a resource that is very similar. Okay, now this resource is not for everyone. For instance, it's not designed for startups, okay, who people who are only just starting out. It's really only beneficial for more established business who are typically turning over at least late five figures through six figures up to the early seven figures. Plus, the business owners need to want to increase their profits and how much they are personally taking home. They need to be open-minded about learning new principles and strategies and be prepared to implement what they discover. Well, what is it that I'm talking about? It's a session where I'll help you to unlock at least 50K of extra hidden revenues in only 50 minutes without spending a penny more on marketing or advertising. And that's guaranteed. Now, please understand that this is not a discovery call in disguise. It's more than a session, in fact. It's a fully-fledged, standalone little mini program that combines some training, strategies and coaching. Now, you might be sceptical and wonder, how can I possibly do that? Well, it's a combination. Combination of things. So before the session, you'll do a 50-minute video training that explains why most small business marketing doesn't work as well as you'd like and what to do instead. Now, I've even had experienced marketers scratching their heads saying, wow, 
I'm not doing this myself <laughs> when they've watched that video. Okay, second thing, in the session itself, I use our proprietary business assessment software, which has millions of algorithms that help us to evaluate different strategies to see which ones would be most profitable for you. And thirdly, you'll also do a personality profile test that helps me to guide you to the particular strategies that are most suited to you or perhaps the person who would be implementing these strategies. And of course, I've been coaching and consulting in one form or another since 2003. So of course, my experience comes into play here too. Now, even though I'm guaranteeing the session and if I don't find you the guaranteed amount, you won't pay a penny, I'm not even asking for the whole amount up front. You just pay a small deposit and then only pay the rest once I've shown you the money. Want to know more? Head over to the webpage now at creatorflow.tv50k. So that's a number 50, number K. Or click the link in the description. Let me give that to you again. It's creatorflow.tv forward slash 50k. What helps to remind you of who you are? <laughs> I'm laughing, you know, because working at home and just having people who don't give a, a rat's backside, whether I'm the chief exec of Lancashire Women or the chief exec of a, a smarty shop or a lollipop shop do you know what I mean it's like family and friends they ground you very often because they don't need to see the, the the crap or the bullshit if you like if you'll pardon the expression that can come around that stuff um I don't think I'm like that anyway but they certainly kind of have a habit of going of asking questions that you just think well that's just obvious why, why are you asking that and it's like oh you know just kind of come back down remember where you are you're at home you're doing stuff or you're why didn't I think of that that's why we've got to do something it's so obvious it's that kind of grounding I also have a really good bunch of people around me at work I have good colleagues um, and also good connections across the area and just colleagues from the past really that have that sort of challenge and question role and that kind of peer network's quite quite important as well I, I agree. And I think it's it's not just the challenging and questioning. It's also the supporting and reminding yeah. of how great you are. Yes, that's very true. I'm not very good at that stuff in the sense that I'm really good at doing it for everybody else. And I think, again, to be placed in a space where you can receive that and hear that from a bunch of people around you. And it's not just because they're your partner or they're your mum or your whatever in that family setting. It is about hopefully because of that recognition that they can see what you're doing and, and who you are in that. So, yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I think that's something I want women to get better at is actually appreciating how fantastic they are. And the, what you were saying about not being apologetic you know, not not apologizing for who they are, not apologizing for what they want, not apologizing for going after it um, and really believing that they deserve it. I, that's what I want to see more of in the world. I would agree. And I think that's one of the kind of key things or several of the key things, in fact, that sit under our aims and objectives as an organization. You know, we're, we're striving to support women across Lancashire to take their place, to come into the space as equals with each other and also alongside men and it isn't about 
as lots of people say to us, well, what about men? And it's like, well, what about men? All we're trying to do is lift women where there is disadvantage and we want to support them with their families, with men, with brothers, fathers, uncles, all the rest of it. It's, it's not an exclusive journey, this. It's a really collective journey. And that whole thing around the sort of women's agenda generally is, you know, some of the best feminists have been some fabulous men who've worked and come alongside us in the journey of kind of uh, equality and that carries on. So, yeah. Well, I can't disagree with you there. My husband is one of the best feminists I know. (laughs) There you go. Point made. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. What's one what the flip moment that you've had? Um... That's a really interesting question. And I remember when we talked about this, and possibly kind of, I sort of flipped around even with what that was, but the, what the flip um, situation for me, I think was probably more around um, being in a situation in another organization where I had to go through an induction period with a manager who you would expect in terms of any other form would be doing sort of a program of a couple of days here, maybe a week here. And I was a manager. I kind of didn't expect it to be too much. I didn't expect anything sort of too uh, convoluted. But um, I think we met in a coffee shop one morning and by lunchtime we were done. And um, I think for me, that was a process of, right, get on with it. And I'm going to now judge you based on everything that we've just gone through with that process. So for me, that was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? What am I going to do now? You know, that kind of what the heck have I walked into what on earth am I going to do now so yeah I mean there are lots of what the flip moments so but that certainly comes to mind as one of them just in terms of being left high and dry are there any managers out there listening to this take note (laughs) generally speaking the how somebody is onboarded into an organization has a massive impact on a their performance and b how long they stay Totally. Well, it's really interesting because I left after about uh, 11 months. And I bet you would have left before 11 months if maybe the right thing had come along or you didn't want it to look bad on your CV. Yeah, probably that afternoon, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Because you just felt miserable. You felt like, right, you know, you're a capable, competent person and you can connect with people and you can ask stuff. And it's not like you're completely... um, unable to try and make something sort of stitched together however you know it was a big organization it was a big job and not to have that sort of support and that program of engagement with the work with colleagues with anything along that whole onboarding process that you would want to include in that poor blimey I'm curious what did he say when he was wrapping it up do you remember well he kind of didn't he just said let's go to the office now and I'll kind of connect you up with your computer everything else sat me in front of it and walked off I didn't see him again until probably the following week over a telephone call so anything around equipment anything around my connecting into systems anything around my team apart from having had their names in that very brief coffee session that was it seriously it was spectacular (laughs) Mm, definitely what the flip yeah totally (laughs) totally that's the one I can repeat without a lot of added swearing or various yeah. other dramatic things. <laughs> but yeah, of course, there are lots of moments of those 
where you just think, oh, crikey. But that was quite full on. That was sobering, I have to say. Well, I know um, I, I want to talk now about some of the successes that you've had. And there's a lot. There is a lot. I'd like to focus in on one, though, where you've taken to platforms, you know, across the UK where you could share something that could make a difference. Tell me more about that. So I think for me, one of the big, um, I think one of the areas I know that I can do well and I've done well in the past, and this is something that I just keep trying to develop my skills with, and I've not really had much of an opportunity, I suppose, um, more recently, and certainly probably won't do for a while yet, I have to say, is to be able to stand on a platform and talk to people. I've done lots of different sort of presentational things, but I've also worked within the media and been interviewed and been part of panels. And at any of those moments in time, it's been the opportunity to stand there and articulate really from the organization that you're working for, but to have really the passion that I have, having worked in the sector now for good 20 years plus, 25 years plus, it's being able to put forward that passion. It's being able to articulate the kind of issues, the concerns, um, but also really um, take the space in a way which perhaps challenges other people's mindset, challenges common perceptions, explodes those myths about a particular issue. And, and to do it in a way which isn't shaming, but is enlivening and inspiring and just you know, really to be able to, to, to do that has been an absolute joy. Um, as much as anything else, it really kills the adrenaline, I have to say. But that's the bit, that's the, the kind of buzz of being able to stand there and, uh, and, and put forward something that matters. It's real, that's been a real, that's been a real um, important part of my working life, actually. What tips can you share on how to do that well? Do you know, one of the really big things for me is um, this goes back to when I was a kid and I actually used to sing and sing in a band. And I think there's something about performance in relation to standing on a platform and understanding that it is actually part of a performance. And what you can bring to that is really important rather than just thinking you're there to deliver the message of something that's been written for you or that you've written and you just need to get across. It's about understanding the performance of that. And it doesn't mean to say you have to do handstands, cartwheels and wear a funny frock or whatever. It, it's about understanding not just the content of what you're saying, but how you're delivering it. And to know that you need to engage with an audience in a way which isn't just about standing still and delivering that message. And if you can do that, and as I say, going back to when I was a kid, I used to sort of stand in front of the mirror, I suppose like the rest of us maybe, with a microphone hairbrush or whatever, and pretend I was in that band and parade around and ponce around and do whatever I was gonna do, but then, actually having the opportunity to do that and to understand a little bit about that performance craft and to understand the response of an audience and to understand what it is when you stand on a stage and you're separate, but on the one hand, you're trying to engage emotionally or intellectually or whatever it is, that performance element is really, really important. Um, so yeah, that would be one thing. And it doesn't mean to say you've got to go to drama school. It doesn't mean to say that you've got to do all that kind of stuff and study something. It's just trying to understand who your audience are and think about how you can engage with them 
and think about then how you and your body, as well as your voice, are projecting what it is you want to say. If you stand there and say you're really passionate and you look like a wet weekend in Skegness, then that isn't going to say anything, is it? It, it's the idea that even on a wet weekend in Skegness, this is the most fabulous thing you've ever seen or ever done or you want to tell people about. It, it really is quite interesting to see how to, how to work and develop those skills. Well, I love that. And something you may not know about me is I actually worked as an actor for a while. Ah, OK. <laughs> now she says. <laughs> Thanks for no, that. I get it. I get it. Totally. Yeah. Um, Yes, my claim to fame is I've been on Coronation Street twice. <laughs> wow, that is definitely a good claim to fame, I have to say. <laughs> I, one thing I want to kind of pull out and emphasise from what you said there is that, because I think there might be some people hearing that who would think, oh, but I have to be myself. And Amanda was talking about being authentic and knowing who you are. And one of the things that I really learned in my acting is how much you actually can bring your personality and who you are into a role. And I think that's exactly the same what you're talking about in terms of whether you're singing, whether you're making a, a speech, giving a presentation or you're acting a role. There's there's like levels of there's, there's extremes of who we are. Um, and I remember going to an event where this guy was talking about actor branding and talking about. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm trying to remember the name of the actor now. Actor branding. Uh, that in itself is quite What's kinda... his name? Um, uh, you know, that did The Shining. Oh, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so he's talking about Jack Nicholson and saying that. You know, on the one hand, you've got Jack Nicholson in The Shining. But on the other hand, um, there's another film whose name I can't remember now. If only my husband was here. He's like a walking IMDb. Um, but it was a film where he was totally subdued. Totally subdued. And one of the things that's in common with Jack Nicholson in every film, apart from this one, is at some point he's going to explode. Okay. And so part of the tension that was created in that film where he actually was more subdued is everyone was waiting for him to explode. Okay. But he never did. Okay. And it created okay. a, a tension. But it was it's that whole thing about being on a continuum that there are certain elements of us and our personalities that we're going to sit somewhere along that. And if you can get... A bit of an inkling on what the of what those things are which again comes back to what you said in the earlier on about getting to know who you are and accepting yeah. that then you know when to turn certain things up and turn certain things down 100 percent, 100 percent. that makes absolute you're, you're sense being you yeah yeah absolutely and i think sometimes the really important thing is knowing when to turn it down quite frankly <laughs> That can be a challenge. <laughs> I think certainly, you know, when you're if you're used to being kind of quite bouncy and out there, sometimes the challenge is to turn it down. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. 
And and I think for most people, like when when they're in a setting like this, when you're you're on camera, you're on microphone, or you're on a stage, sometimes they don't understand how much they need to turn it up if they are a, a more naturally quiet person. Sure. And um, like I quite often have with clients say they're starting to do video for social media or something or for the website, and I always say to them, amp things up a bit, amp things up until you feel you're overdoing it. And then I guarantee you when you watch yourself back, it's probably just about what you would be like if you're in person. Because okay. it feels weird if you're just doing it yourself. I mean, at least you've got an audience in front of you. Yeah. Then you've got that feedback. But I think it's the same thing if, yeah. you know, you're presenting on Zoom or Teams or something in a professional setting right yeah. now. I'm not saying you should be going mad or anything, <laughs> but you might need to just amp things up a little bit. To just It's about energy. Yeah, I think that is true. I think it's really important as well when you were saying earlier about this idea of acting. And I think I would want to kind of really um, sort of focus in on that idea of acting is one thing and performance actually might just be something else. And it's that idea of being who you are and having that sense of performance as such. And what I mean by that is exactly what we've just been talking about, where you can adjust the volume up and down that spectrum and kind of click in and out of those aspects of your personality that you want to accentuate at any one moment in time because the acting bit maybe will panic some people yeah it's not about of, being false that's not no, what I mean absolutely yeah 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 yeah, yeah exactly for sure. <laughs> yeah good that's really interesting really interesting I, I just love how we get to know each other in these interviews <laughs> <laughs> I'm having some wonderful, fascinating conversations. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine with some amazing people as well. Absolutely. One of them being you. Oh, well, now that's a real test of my imposter syndrome at that moment in time <laughs> in being able to graciously accept. Just go, yes, Thank just you, let it Una. wash over you. Fabulous. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's very kind of you to say so. <laughs> hey, I'm just saying the truth. <laughs> I want to share an amazing resource with you that has really helped me to be more focused in my everyday work. So much so, in fact, that I've done this over 2,000 times so far. What is it? A video co-working platform called Focusmate.com. The platform matches you with a partner for a 50-minute video call where we work on our own projects and hold each other accountable. And here's how it works. At the beginning of every session, you have a quick intro and tell each other what you plan to focus on during that session, and then you get to work. At the end of the session, you check in with each other to see how you got on. And there's just something magical about this in-the-moment accountability and the energy of having another person there. And the first time I realised how much of an impact my Focusmate sessions were having was one day when I booked six sessions three in the morning and three in the afternoon. When I got to the end of the day, I was so tired and I had been super productive, got loads done. And I realised that these Focusmate sessions had stopped time leaks. For example, the three minute takes to boil the kettle, that turns into 10 or 15 minutes as you scroll on social media. These days, if I'm not coaching, speaking or in a meeting, if it's working hours, I'm probably on a Focusmate session. I typically use them to work on my marketing and to do admin, but you can do whatever you want on them. Personally, I find it helpful to type what I'm doing into the chat box as I'm doing it, task by task. 
Another benefit I've received is that I've got much better at understanding how long it actually takes to do things, which has really helped me in my business planning. Now, you can do three sessions a week for free, and it's only a few dollars a month for unlimited sessions. You can go and sign up at focusmate.com. Now, I know that you might be someone who's a little nervous at the thought of being matched with a stranger. So I'd like to invite you to book a Focusmate session with me. Simply go to creativeflow.tv forward slash Focusmate. And if I have some sessions booked, then you'll be able to match with me. So find the link in the description or type in creativeflow.tv forward slash Focusmate in your browser. Now, I want to share a statistic with you. So we have come to our speak up statistic spot. Okay. I read recently, in fact, it was just in this last week, that according to McKinsey, one in four women are thinking of leaving or downgrading their career because of the impact of the pandemic. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, totally understandable. I was listening to a really interesting um, commentary, uh, sort of article piece. I can't remember where it was, actually, um, about exactly that and the fact that they feel that women's equality and the fight for equality has been turned back something like 30, 40 years and that women's position back in the home has really been accentuated by the complexity of the other roles that we often still carry and that's not to say or to take away from any guys who are in their families of whatever combination they are pulling their own weight and doing their thing that's not to take away from that at all but unfortunately they are still in the minority when it has come to this kind of situation so yes that statistic doesn't surprise me the reality is we're still the prime carers and that's not just for children but that's also for the elderly and for our parents and others and we're still the ones who are doing I understand from the stats the majority of the work at home as well as the work that we're doing in our jobs and therefore with all of those things women are beginning to feel like actually do I really want to work is it just that I need to be doing this role of parent carer housekeeper whatever it is so yeah that isn't a surprise. It's an absolute, I can't even begin to express how I feel about it. It's an absolute travesty. I mean, what the hell? What the hell? But yeah. So, so I, totally I've got a question sense. about this, which is women today have got different expectations. And so now I'm not, I'm not in that position. I don't have any children. Um, my parents have both passed away. We don't have any elder care issues. Um, there's just myself and my husband. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from that point of view, we, we, I guess we have it a bit easy compared to some other families. And, but, but one of the things that's totally key is the relationship that we have and the communication that we have. So I cannot help but ask well, rather than thinking, oh, I'm going to leave or downgrade my career, like, are they not having conversations? Like, you know, I would encourage you, if you're in this position and you're listening right now, please start have these conversations with your partners. Now, if there isn't a partner and it's just all they're having to do everything because they can't use those external services, you know, then I get it. There's probably, you know, they've less choice. There's less choices there. But where there is a family situation, where there is a partner there, then 
that's about changing those dynamics. I mean, of course, there is a responsibility on organizations to be able to support where they can as well. But I mean, I don't know, am I just being naive? No, I don't think you are, actually. I, I think sometimes that conversation is probably, for many women, one of the hardest conversations they could potentially end up having. If you've been pootling along and you're as comfortable as anything, and maybe you can frame it in the context of this crazy world and the pandemic, that that difficult conversation can happen at this moment in time, then I think that this is the moment. This is the time to be doing that. And I, I would say yes. But we also know that women are just in that place and space where, and this is the really interesting thing for me, we all get used to doing stuff in particular ways that they become habits and they become part of our identity in all of the roles that we have, not just at work. And sometimes even breaking out of that is really difficult to do because that habit becomes who we think we are. And the challenge then becomes about challenging that sense of ourselves. So is it for women about actually I need to be the prime carer, I want to look after my kids? Or is it about saying that they can't have it all? This whole concept that we debated and discussed, I think probably as feminists for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years is can women have it all? And the point I would like to raise is, well, do men have it all? And why can they have it all? And women can't have it all. And what does having it all mean? Or does it just mean actually breaking it down and doing exactly as you said and trying to kind of do some task sharing and share the burden, share the load? Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it's naive, but I think it sits on top of an iceberg that below the water is deep and huge and multifaceted and complex in that in that way i i agree it is complex and i know i know from the women that i work with that like one of the biggest things that i'm doing with women i work with a lot of the time is getting them to prioritize themselves and their goals and to stop yeah. caring so much what everybody else thinks yeah. um and those two things are quite often yeah. really connected um yeah. so yeah like um yeah i just it just we operate in a world of we operate in a world of binaries as well. It's it's a kind of either or. It's an up or down, black or white, here or there. You know, and actually, life isn't like that. And I think if we can have conversations that reflect that a little bit more, then maybe we can come to that sort of more kind of um, rainbow coloured to be wanting to be not too nicey nicey. But the real kind of you know, it's not even just light and shade. It's it's actually about a complexity of different colours and of different ways of being and of different components of how we live our lives. And we just have to kind of sort that out, really. It's not just about saying, am I going to work or am I not going to work? Am I going to just be a child carer or am I not going to be a child carer? It's more complicated than that. And if you've got a partner and you've got other people in your home that can be part of that discussion, then everybody's in it. And I would argue where appropriate, the children and other people need to be I in was that just going to well. say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that because, um, I don't know, I, I grew up doing chores, you know, and playing a part in the in the family life. And yeah, I mean, it's I, and I think that's I think that's good. I think when uh, children grow up not being given any of those responsibilities well for a start like they they when they leave home what the heck are they supposed to do <laughs> i remember hearing about this um this father who set up a youtube channel 
to and he did it to make videos of just household stuff cleaning repairing things how to clean your car <laughs> like really basic stuff because younger people just had not, not this is not a blanket thing some younger people had no clue because they'd never been given those responsibilities yeah totally <laughs> And I think the other thing that people talk about in that context is that, you know, when young people are going into the workplace and employers increasingly have been saying, well, they don't know how to do this and they don't know how to do that. And it's like, do you know, some of that basic stuff does come home from come from home and, yeah. and just setting it up really, you know, again, the flip side of that is that some young people do all that work and are caring or doing stuff in a really extreme way. Yeah. So you've got you've got the other side of that. But at the same time, again, it's this kind of opportunity to be able to take your place age appropriate where where possible and hope that your family can support you to kind of yeah go and load the washing machine or just kind of hang it out and then do god forbid does anybody do any ironing by the way anymore that's what I want to know <laughs> so tell me what are some takeaways that you would like our listeners to take away we're in the middle of a kind of change process at our organization and you one thing I'm learning and one thing I have learned over the years as a manager is that and I never understood it before but I do now and that is that culture definitely eats strategy for breakfast and I know it's a kind of old business kind of guru sort of saying but I really feel it's something we don't pay enough attention to it's really important to understand the way in which our staff, in our case, our volunteers, but certainly our staff come together, the way in which we organise, the way in which we have structures and processes that support how the organisation actually works is of crucial, it's so crucial to what we do. And it is very much along the lines, of course, you know, you get the contract, you get your KPIs, or you get your piece of work, you decide what your KPIs, your project deadlines are your outcomes your, all your measures your impact analysis all that kind of malarkey all really really important but I cannot overemphasize enough I think just from the experiences that we're going through and that I have done in the past really understanding that element of culture and the importance of paying attention to that and the importance of understanding that knowing that it's not something that you can just switch a light on overnight and change is is certainly something as a takeaway I would want to kind of emphasize from this conversation for sure. Uh, and when you're talking about change I think people often totally underestimate how long change takes and how challenging it can be. Yes and I think again that's why you really need to know as an organization it, you can write stuff down your mission your vision your values all of that brill looks great on the paper but the question is, how are you going to live that? How are you going to operationalize that? How are you going to see that through in a way that is true to what you're trying to do as an organization? And that is hard because people's perceptions of that is the thing that really sort of elevates that element of culture into the kind of positive attribute of your organization or can, can completely denigrate it. It's that interpretation, it's the support to have a shared vision, it's that support to understand and have shared dialogue really around, you know, how is it we want to work together? How is it that we want to be together? What exactly are our roles and responsibilities? And not just as employees, but also in terms of delivering the service or doing the work, but how do we want to connect with each other? How do we want to communicate with each other? How do we want to treat each other and 
yeah absolutely it's a really interesting really interesting area to kind of think about and I personally really enjoy that element of the work I think it can be very inspiring but have no doubt it is uh it's it's hard it's really really tough to do how would you describe the culture at Lancashire Women I would say it is it's dynamic it's supportive and it's an organization that is definitely trying to lean into the values that we have I think it has its challenges and I think ultimately that would be like any other organization and that is just trying to come to terms with who we are as employees within that organization and it goes back to where we started this conversation really which is around knowing who you are and knowing what the boundaries are about what you bring into work and to understand ultimately the, the organization is there to deliver particularly in our case for our beneficiaries and it's really important to know that you are part of that journey and part of that process and not not to kind of lose sense of that not to lose sight of that um, I think for us as an organization we're seen as a very compassionate very uh, caring organization and so we should be because we're working with some of the most vulnerable women within the region but I also would hope that we would be seen to be focused and bounded and disciplined and professional and all of those things as well. Well as you say we've come round full circle I think that's a, a wonderful place to to wrap things up. Um, where can people find you? Well, we have all of the usual social media platforms. So you'll find us on Facebook. If you just plug Lancashire Women into any of your search engines, it will spit out our Twitter uh, sort of Facebook feeds. But equally, LancashireWomen.org is also where you'll find us. And certainly if you want to get in touch with me, you can go on to there. And I'm, I'm linked into all of that stuff as well. So um, I look forward to hearing from anybody who would want to connect up with us, find out more about what we're doing. Um, that would be great. Look forward to hearing from people. Wonderful. Well, as I might have mentioned, I like to help make an impact through this podcast as well. And I think I mentioned the platform B1G1 that uh, I'm a part of. And who knows, maybe um, your organisation might end up being, uh, uh, being a part of that as well. Um, have you enjoyed yourself here today? Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the me opportunity too. for us to chat. Me too. And and when something good happens, we like to make something else good happen. So um, which one of these resonates most with you? Planting, <laughs> planting a fruit tree for a family, empowering a young adult through the creative arts or empowering women to start their own business? The last one. The last one. Not unpredictably, I feel. Aha. We have just done that. So we're going to give one day of business training and microfinance support to women as a result of you being here today and doing this interview with me. Well, thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, Amanda, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you here today. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your wisdom and your stories, your successes, your challenges. Um, I know that that's going to have an impact as well. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's all for today, folks. Make sure that you subscribe to get more of this juicy goodness for your business and check the description for links mentioned in this episode. 
enjoyed this free broadcast? I want you to know that I go so much deeper into the topics discussed so you too can grow a fun to run, highly profitable business that increases your impact and your creative flow. If you'd like to know more about that, let's arrange to hop on a call. You can set that up at creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una. That's creativeflow.tv forward slash call with Una.